Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, when all the options come in, Canada will have five times the amount of vaccination as it does citizens. Is that being greedy? How do we get those vaccinations to those that need it in the underdeveloped world? A new Leger poll says Canadians are in favor of a holiday lockdown to fight off the coronavirus surge. Are you in? And to get a vaccine or to not get a vaccine? What side of the fence are you on? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. All I want for Christmas is a hug and a kiss from someone other than a family member. Wait a second. Be careful what you wish for. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CH Mellon. Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Uh, Canada is already one of the top donors to the COVAX facility. That is a global initiative to make vaccines available. And a new influx of cash welcomed by global health advocates who have long pointed out that the virus knows no borders. There's been many uh, conversations as to how this is going to be distributed in certain parts of the world, uh, how it's going to be in, you know, distributed in your own town, your own province, uh, other provinces, other Canadian cities, North American cities. And then, of course, from there, uh, the rest of the world, including the developing world. Low-income nations may not receive the vaccine until 2024, we're hearing in in some reports. Uh, to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Dr. Jason Nickerson, Humanitarian Affairs Advisor for Doctors Without Borders, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, explain to everybody what Doctors Without Borders is. So Doctors Without Borders, is a, we're a medical humanitarian organization. Uh, we provide hands-on uh, medical care in, in roughly 70 countries around the world. Uh, mostly in countries that are affected by armed conflicts, natural disasters, disease epidemics, uh, as well as in refugee camps and, and other kinds of humanitarian emergencies. So obviously lots of challenges as we, we've lived through this uh, pandemic, uh, now into the second wave, COVID fatigue setting in, finally a vaccination or vaccinations are arriving and uh, going through the stages of approval. Timeline is of a concern now as we slowly see these uh, trickle in. Uh, the Prime Minister has said we have uh, a large portfolio and if all of this stuff, if, if we, I guess we decide to exercise all of these options, we could end up with more vaccines than we actually do citizens. Are we just to assume that nations, when they get into that situation, will then donate or, or make some sort of, uh, uh, create some sort of situation where other less developed nations can receive these? Well, I think that's the, the question of the day. I mean, as you mentioned, Canada has at least options to purchase, uh, as well as some firm commitments to purchase, um, up to 414 million doses of, of COVID vaccines. Um, so, you know, we have a, a, a Canadian population of roughly 38 million people. So we're talking about enough vaccine doses to cover the Canadian population five times over. Um, so that, that needs to be uh, viewed in the context of, of uh, a global 
race for these vaccines uh, as well. Uh, and, and as I'm sure you know, and as your listeners uh, won't be surprised to learn, COVID vaccines are, are in high demand and, and low supply. I mean, yeah. We're talking about vaccines that did not exist uh, mere months ago uh, and now are you know, have gone through the, the steps, or at least some have gone through the steps of clinical trials demonstrating efficacy and safety and, and so on, and now are, are being used in some countries around the world, including in Canada. And that's not a global reality uh, for for many people. Uh, and and predominantly what I'm speaking about is, is people who are in uh, low and middle income countries um, who are uh, often uh, at unfortunately at, at the back of the line to to receive uh, new medical technologies like medicines and and vaccines um, and it, there's been a lot of movement and I think it's un- important to understand this there's there's been a lot of attention that's been paid to um, developing a mechanism for global equitable allocation of, of COVID vaccines to make sure that we get them uh, to the highest risk people uh, wherever they are in the world. So frontline healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, uh, you know, support staff, that sort of thing. Um, but unfortunately, it, it's looking like uh, the, the path towards equitable access to COVID vaccines. Uh, we're, we're, we're simply just not on, on track. And it looks like it's going to be uh, several months, if not years, uh, before uh, people around the world in, in low and middle income countries have the same kind of access as, as what we have in Canada. Uh, the fact that, uh, and again, as you said, these are options for orders if you decide to, if we decide to go that way, and nobody knew which ones of these were going to be developed first or, or so on. So obviously it was wise for the government to shoot wide here. But as you mentioned, if the options, with the options, five times the population, just with even those pre-orders on paper or, you know, without them actually being filled yet, does that hamper uh, or hurt other countries in other way, in any way? Well, that's that's certainly the the concern. Um, and it, going back to one of your earlier questions about, you know, will countries can we assume that countries will will donate these? Um, there there's not many countries who have explicitly said that 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 they will, and and Canada is one of them. Um, now, I think it's important to recognize that earlier this week, the Canadian government announced additional funding uh, for the the global COVID response, and that included. A specific announcement to create a mechanism to facilitate these kinds of, of donations um, or exchanges uh, of COVID vaccines from countries that have, have purchased perhaps more than they need. Um, but what I think we need to see is a, a clear commitment, at least in principle, um, to uh, making these kinds of donations so that we don't end up with some countries uh, sitting on a surplus uh, while other countries uh, simply don't have enough to, to vaccinate their, their high-risk people. And I think that really the, the litmus test here of, of how well this is going to work is, is going to be uh, the answer to the question of, of will uh, lower-risk people in high-income countries be vaccinated before higher-risk people in, in mm. low-income countries? Um, and that really becomes the issue, doesn't it? That's right. I mean, you know, what we're talking about are our frontline healthcare workers. We're talking about uh, people who are at higher risk because they uh, are in overcrowded refugee camps or living in in, uh, in armed conflict or, or something. I mean, there's a, a number of different things that make somebody at a higher risk. 
uh, for COVID. And, and uh, these are the people that are absolutely essential that, that we target. And I, I, maybe also just to point out that, you know, access to vaccines is is one tool in the public health toolbox. Um, it's not, uh, as many public health professionals have, have mentioned, um, you know, it's not the only tool that we need to be deploying. Um, but uh, as we look towards what kinds of strategies we need to be implementing to bring in an end to the pandemic, we, we need to recognize it's not just about COVID. It's also about the secondary impacts of the COVID pandemic on access to all kinds of health services. And we see that in Canada as well with the delay or cancellation of elective surgeries and outpatient clinics and that sort of thing. These, these kinds of cancellations and, and closures of health service are having devastating effects for people uh, around the world and in places where we work, where access to, to routine health services um, is, is a challenge at the best of times. But now with these additional layers of, of closures and movements on, res- on or restrictions on movement, sorry, um, you know, people's access to, to essential health services uh, has, has really declined in a significant way. So ending the pandemic uh, through access to vaccines and through the implementation of effective uh, public health measures is really a, a, a matter of humanitarian urgency. Again, at the beginning of all this, nobody knows which one of these are going to come to fruition or if, in fact, they all uh, are. So that being said, should countries like Canada just buy what we need or is um, or is this just being prepared? Well, I mean, we find ourselves in a situation where everybody is trying to coordinate with everyone else on, on how to sort of adopt uh, a strategy to, to vaccinate high-risk people within their their borders, but also uh, globally. I mean, I, I think the Canadian government has been quite clear that um, they they support equitable access to, to COVID vaccines. And, and we've heard the Prime Minister, as well as many uh, ministers in, in Cabinet, say, you know, the, the, the pandemic doesn't end here until it ends everywhere and, and for everyone. Um, and so the... the the, the challenge of doing this is that the global uh, pharmaceutical uh, research and development and manufacturing and, and distribution system is, is simply not set up to facilitate this kind of global equitable access. That's just not how the, the system works. Um, as I mentioned, typically new vaccines and new medicines are launched in, in higher income, uh, wealthier countries first, uh, because that's where the sort of most profitable market is. Uh, it's, it is typically not in low income countries. And so access uh, to new medicines uh, comes with a significant delay for people in, in many of the places where we work. So in response to that, for COVID vaccines, we saw the creation uh, of something called COVAX, which is essentially in a, uh, a mechanism to coordinate and support the research and development of needed COVID vaccines, and then also to uh, find a way of, of incentivizing uh, manufacturers to, to scale up uh, manufacturing uh, so that, you know, it can be purchased with a pool of, of uh, funding. So it's called an advanced market commitment. Um, but that I think it's important to understand that that's a, a mechanism that did not exist before uh, the COVID pandemic, and it's, it's been created over a number of months. So we're really, you know, to use the analogy, we're, we're building the plane as it's, as it's flying. Yeah. And that's in direct response to the fact that this is not how the system typically works. So we've got a, a coordination and distribution mechanism 
that's being built, uh, you know, basically uh, just in time for, for it to be to be used. So there's a fundamental problem here that, that needs to be fixed independent of, of COVID. Uh, it's really a, a, a broader question of access to medicines and, and affordable access to, to life-saving medicines and vaccines. And, you know, we've talked at length on this show since this pandemic began of systems that have had to change and how a lot of these changes will continue. For example, just the speed in which this vaccination uh, was developed and then approved is just an incredible, uh, an incredible example of silos being torn down and, and, and people working together. So it's very well we could see the same thing when it comes to global distribution of something like this. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that this is the question and the, the this is the conversation that we need to be having uh, as as Canadians. There's a lot of issues that have been put onto the table and into the public discussion in the last month, two months, uh, nine months of, of this pandemic. You know, we've seen everything from uh, at the start asking the question, why don't we have a, a vaccine for coronaviruses through to how clinical trials are conducted, how how. Uh, civil society and governments uh, work to support the, the needed research and development, uh, how, how to engage with industry and so on. And, you know, really a, a truly massive mobilization of, of public funding, including from the Canadian government, who mobilized a, a, a billion dollars of, of public funds, I would say entirely appropriately, uh, to incentivize and support the needed R&D. Uh, to to develop COVID vaccines and therapeutics and diagnostics and and so on. And now we're having a conversation around what kind of biomanufacturing capacity should we have in in this country. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think that it's important that we not have these conversations in in isolation. I mean, we're we're fundamentally talking about uh, a a pharmaceutical research and development ecosystem or or landscape or however you want to think of it. But, you know, we should be having this discussion in, in Canada about how do we support uh, a, a research and development uh, and scientific co- collaboration uh, that links sort of public health needs, identifying what are the, the health conditions that we need to prioritize, either because they present a public health threat um, or because there's simply not enough innovation into the kinds of medicines and vaccines uh, to address other kinds of, of health concerns that uh, exist at home and, and abroad. But how do we turn those needs into a, a viable research and development system so that we're incentivizing and supporting uh, the, the development of new medicines and vaccines and then linking that to an effective manufacturing strategy so that at the end we have enough of the kinds of vaccines and medicines that we need at an affordable price uh, for patients to access and how do we you know pivot when we need to to be able to scale up to uh, meet demand both both at home and and globally um, it's a big conversation um, but I think that we've you know, we're, we're we're really shining a light on how um, this entire system works or mm. or or doesn't work, um, and I think that it'd, it'd be a shame to not take advantage of that to to really push for a, a a better system that works more equitably, that delivers more affordable vaccines and medicines, and that responds to public health needs both at home and and around the world. Dr. Jason Nickerson has been with us, humanitarian affairs advisor for Doctors Without Borders, talking about those in less developed countries receiving COVID-19 vaccination and the timeline to make that happen. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Be well. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Not a good day at the Thompson household today, kids. Got to keep my voice down. Uh, the dog is eating uh, my wife's Martha Stewart tree. <laughs> I'd be under the bed if I were you, pal. Uh, I don't. He's chewing the lights, not the decorations, not the tree. It's a fake tree fake Martha Stewart tree, Um, just like the light bulbs. I have never heard of that before in my life. If you've got a solution, please let us know. Not the decorations, not knocking it over, not roughhousing. Just when no one's looking, he starts chewing on the little wee lights. And then the next thing you know, uh, dink, the tree's out because he's severed through the cord. How he isn't getting electrocuted is beyond me, uh, but that's the situation in the Thompson household on this Wednesday. All right. Uh, lots of chatter about uh, where we are with Christmas. Uh, obviously, cases are moving up, and there's chatter of uh, future lockdowns and, um, and, and how do Canadians feel like that, uh, feel about that. Uh, a recent Leger poll says that um, we don't mind. Mo- majority of us don't mind being locked down over Christmas if it helps uh, fight the surge in COVID-19. Uh, here's what um, Minister Elliott, Health Minister Elliott, had to say in regard to the story that Lime Ridge is extending its hours uh, <laughs> to make up for those that might be coming in from other zones that are uh, on lockdown. Here's what she had to say. We are really encouraging people not to travel from a lockdown zone to a a zone that is at a lesser level, even though Hamilton is in the red. Uh, But it's still, we want people to stay in place, stay in your own homes as much as possible. It's sort of the the stay home time of the year. I know people want to celebrate, but this time next year, uh, will be very different. We will be able to resume our holiday celebrations, but for right now, please don't go shopping in other areas. All right, uh, there you have it, and, and it's going to be a, a fascinating time between now and Christmas as uh, people grapple with this. Let's bring in Dave Schultz, Executive VP of Leger, and is with us now. 65% of respondents in the poll conducted by Leger and the Association of Canadian Studies said they supported a general lockdown in their province during uh, the holidays to tackle the pandem- uh, pandemic virus uh, versus 29% who opposed the idea. Dave Schultz with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. hope you're well well thank you very much i am i hope you're well as well are you surprised by these numbers you know i i'm yeah i'm always surprised by, by these numbers because we hear so much about how uh people just want to get on with their lives and people want to open up but when it comes right down to it uh we're still worried about the pandemic which is a good thing um, we're still doing the right things and we're looking to find ways to get through the Christmas holiday without increasing the numbers. So 65% saying that they would support a general lockdown is is consistent with other data we're seeing. Um, For example, 60% of all Canadians are are still very concerned about getting the virus, and that's been consistent since uh, since the last eight weeks. So we know there's a vaccine on the way. We have some optimism. Uh, but we still are listening to public health and knowing that we have to do things to get it right. So um, what about eagerness to jump in line and be vaccinated? So we're, we still want to wait a little bit. Uh, that hasn't changed. We're finding that uh, most Canadians would like to go for the second vaccine or we're willing to wait a little bit and let others go first. 
especially if you're younger, those under the age of 40 are generally saying, well, let's, you know, I'm so I don't know if it's a question of I'm apprehensive about wanting to wait, or it's a question of I know I'm not first in line, because older people, long term care residents, and uh, health care workers need to go first. So it's hard to interpret the data on that. But generally, people are willing to wait for the second, second vaccine to show up. So again, why is that? Is that because they think others deserve it before them? Or are they questioning the science in this? Well, we ask people in general, are you willing to get the vaccine overall? Uh, we're finding that it's, uh, it's, it's only about uh, 66%. So two thirds of Canadians say that they plan to get vaccinated anyways. Um, but it's not necessarily because they're concerned about uh, vaccines being dangerous. That number is only at 9%. It's more a case of, I don't feel I need this, is what we're hearing. So what, what do you think the final tally will be one year from now or once the, the vaccination uh, process is complete in this country? How many of us do you think will have ended up being vaccinated? I want to take a stab at that or a jab in this case. <laughs> um, you know, I, I can't even go with a guess, but we are seeing the numbers start to creep up slightly. Um, so as, as the vaccines have started the rollout, now people are a little more willing to get vaccinated, just a touch more. And I think as we start to hear more and more and less um, stories about allergic reactions, or, then that number will go up. If we hear lots of stories about adverse effects, then, uh, then I don't think we're going to get much more than the two-thirds. Now, what about the timeline in which we're, we're receiving it? Because, again, it's odd where we're having the debate, and there was a, a debate yesterday because the teachers' union here uh, came out and said it wants its uh, members, its teachers, to be in the queue for the next set of, of, uh, of vaccinations that go through. So all of a sudden the debate has started, well, who gets it first? Obviously, uh, what we've done here is um, uh, healthcare workers uh, in, hot, in, in hot zones and, and those long-term care. Uh, then after that, you could see it being the rest of the healthcare system, uh, pharmacies, uh, emergency services, police, fire, paramedics, that sort of thing. And then I'm guessing other frontline workers like food chain people, teachers, uh, pharmacists, uh, I might have mentioned that already, and childcare. So we're having this debate about, uh, you know, who will or who should be getting it first. If there wasn't a supply issue, would we, would we be having those discussions? No, I, I, I don't think we would be having those discussions if there wasn't a, a supply issue. Generally, Canadians, uh, I'm going to go back two weeks when we did the, ask this question last. Two weeks ago, Canadians didn't anticipate getting the vaccine until spring or summer. There was that sense that we weren't going to get it uh, started and all these other groups need to be looked after first before the general public. Now that the vaccine has landed on Canadian soil, we're starting to hear, or Canadians are starting to be a little more optimistic. And uh, the percentage who feel that uh, uh, there's going to be a significant amount of vaccinations done in December has gone up. The percentage who are looking at winter as a time to get vaccinated has gone up. We're still anticipating spring as the major time for most of us, uh, but it's uh, we're becoming a little more optimistic that it's going to be earlier than that. 
And what about compared to other countries? Are we concerned that others are ahead of us? Are we all roughly in the same sort of predicament? Because obviously we're hearing about supply issues for other countries as well as Canada. Yeah, so we don't, we didn't ask Canadians what they thought about other countries, but we do ask the same questions of Americans. And um, in general, we find that Americans are slightly less willing to get vaccinated, um, slightly less willing to uh, to wait than us, um, but more willing. To, I'm sorry, more willing to wait uh, for that second round and see how it goes with the first round. And what does that say to you? Are you surprised at that, considering where the U.S. has been with their cases and such? I, you know, I think a lot of that comes down to um, shows like yours, Scott, and others in terms of how uh, we have handled it in Canada from a communications and media standpoint and public health, as opposed to the uh, very different messages that have gone out in the U.S. state by state and uh, city by city, uh, all have taken different extreme approaches to this. Um, The consistent message across Canada has uh, allowed Canada to kind of buckle down and understand the severity of this. As time goes by, do you see the uh, the want for this vaccination increasing, or do you see that decreasing as more become vaccinated? It, it's hard to tell, but even within the last two weeks, we see a slightly higher want uh, just based on it's now available. I, th- I think the number is going to go up, uh, but a lot depends on uh, the stories we hear uh, as opposed to with adverse effects of, of like the two people in the UK who had mm. who had allergies to this. Um, it's it's a normal thing, but it's not what we want to hear right now. Are there those in parts of the country that are more willing to get this than others? Is there any? I mean, many have said that there's you know you maybe lean to the to the political right if you have a tendency not to want to get this vaccination, uh, or has it been that uh, there's those that are a little cautious, skeptical, whatever word you want to use on both sides of the political spectrum? You know, it's it's fairly consistent across the country. Yeah. Um, you know, if you go to Alberta, 65% of Albertans are likely to get vaccinated compared to 66% nationally. Uh, Ontario actually has the highest average at 68%, but we're all within the margin of error. So it's all around that two-thirds number. Where we see differences coming into place is generally in uh, rural regions, are slightly less likely. It's only 15% if you're in a, in a rural area, whereas it's 71% in a, in a major urban center. And also slightly different in terms of age. Um, people under the age of 30, sorry, people under the age of 55, it's only about 57, 58% that are thinking of getting vaccinated. People over 55, it's higher. So age and where you live, Uh, from a metropolis or census standpoint, as opposed to region of the country, seems to be a predictor here. We know that there's always been those that are anti-vaxxers, and and no matter what the situation is, uh, they're against that. And and perhaps many have said that that's a generational thing. Uh, A lot of people don't remember the days of polio and measles and and the issues that were around there, whereas the older generation may remember this. 
uh, may remember those incidents. Does this global pandemic change our perception of vaccination? Do we realize, do we have a, a more appreciation for this considering a global pandemic? It's, it's hard to say because I don't have specific numbers prior to this, but we're looking at about 9% of Canadians who view vaccines in general as dangerous. And it's an interesting group segment of the population. It tends to be people between the ages of 35 to 54 that are most believing of this. Um, anyone in the 55-plus generation who has gone through polio who or at least is aware of it, um, is only at 6%, so it's off the scale. But it tends to be that middle segment of the population where a lot of anti-vaxxers tend to, tend to show up. It, it, it seems that it was about, um, my memory might fail me here, 20, 25 years ago that this whole sort of movement really got a lot of legs. Does that say something about this demographic? You know, it fits within that demographic, yeah. getting, the, getting the legs and carrying with it over time. The, the, the thing that we have to watch for is that the next generation, the 18 to 34-year-olds, uh, they're also at 9%. So it isn't like they're down to five or four or believing in this right now. So here's an opportunity to show the next generation that vaccines can be safe and are certainly important to the population in order to take. Do you see perception of this um, uh, of this pandemic, of the vaccination changing, uh, say, in the in, in the next six months? Do you see any drastic shifts happening uh, as far as these numbers as we get through the holidays and then eventual vaccination? Um, I'm going to be a, it's a little harder to say that we've been tracking the are vaccines dangerous for only a month now. And within those three waves of data collection, it has not changed at all. Hmm. And a lot has changed in terms of vaccines becoming available, uh, in terms of them being approved by the uh, by the federal government. Um, people are starting to receive it. And the first vaccine was given during this uh, data collection for the most recent period. If you are anti-vaccination, you're pretty entrenched in that viewpoint. It's going to be hard to move you. Uh, is from what we've seen from our experience, but it's uh, uh, it, it's that other group that is that between the 65 percent and the 91 percent who are at least open to taking vaccines. How do we move those 65 percent who say they will get the vaccine? How do we get that next 25 to get them to do it as well? That's where I think we'll see the growth hmm. uh, in this is that people will. I'm not opposed to vaccines, but I'm not going to take this vaccine those people's opinions might start to change. Dave Schultz has been with us, Executive VP of Leger. Majority of Canadians in favor of a holiday uh, lockdown if it, it will help fight the coronavirus surge. Dave, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. Feel free to send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Uh, like Frank has, don't feel too bad, uh, Scott. Our cockatoo once helped himself to my $400 dental retainer. <laughs> oh, that's more than like a $30 set of lights. So uh, feel free to keep them coming. And if you have any ideas on how we could possibly um, uh, stop the dog from chewing the lights on the Christmas tree, I would love to hear about that too. Uh, please uh, keep it going. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tavares says that the dog doesn't like the taste of the lights. He wants the buzz. <laughs> 
because he's honestly, he's chomping at this thing while it's lit. And nobody seems to be able to catch him doing it. Uh, he did this sometime this morning. I Nobody knows when it happened, but the lights are on. Now, my daughter brought up a very interesting point here. Uh, the tree is in the front window. Normally, it's not there. There's like a little table there. So he has lots of space to look out the window. Now he can't get towards the window because the tree's kind of in the way and the couch and the chair and stuff. So my daughter thinks that because he feels his his uh, space has been encroached on, that he's mad at the tree and he's chewing it. To which I know you're all saying right now, this could be a lot worse. But what is worse, replacing lights every week or just having to pick some crap up off the floor? Yes, I'm surprised he's not lifting his leg on it, if that is the case. Boy, you know, he starts chewing the wires and then he lifts his leg on it. Then we would really have a problem there. I think we, I think we would see an electrocution of some sort. Oh, my goodness. Here's hoping the, the place don't burn down between now and then. All right, let's move on uh, and continue talking about uh, vaccination. And, you know, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Send us a note or the phone lines are open at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. How do you feel about getting a vaccination? How do you feel about rolling up the sleeve and getting the uh, COVID-19 jab into the arm? Are you confident? Uh, Would you be the first in line? I mean, I I have no problem with it. I would do it today if if it was available to me. I think as a guy in my 50s, I'm not at the top of the line by any means. And as soon as it's my turn, uh, I will roll up my sleeve and get it. I have I have no problem with that. I want to get back to a normal life of some sort. Uh, lots of uh, lots of different avenues, lots of different points, lots of different opinions that uh, come out when it, it the uh, the topic turns to a COVID nineteen vaccination. Let's bring in Maya Goldberg. Uh, sorry, Maya Goldenberg, associate professor of philosophy at the University of Guelph, and is with us now. Maya, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks. So what are your thoughts on where we are with this vaccination and how Canadians are reacting to it? We talked to somebody from Leger earlier on, uh, and I think it's about 65%, 66%, about two-thirds of Canadians uh, are willing to uh, go into another lockdown over the holidays, if that means getting uh, a handle on COVID-19. Do we feel the same way about the vaccination? Well, we keep getting these new studies coming out, and I don't think any of the data is too surprising. Pretty much it, uh, the, the responses to how enthusiastic people are about the COVID vaccine is pretty similar to how people poll on childhood immunizations. That's my area of study. Usually they're talking to parents of young children, but we'll find that for the most part, people are largely accepting of vaccines, but there will be a good group that are uh, hesitant about it, have all kinds of um, concerns about it. And it's actually a very small group that, are, that say absolutely no way. And because people bring their prior feelings about vaccines to the discussions and thinking about the COVID vaccine, we shouldn't have expected anything too different there. So, uh, also, it, it, yeah. sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say the fact that we don't have enough vaccines available for everyone, which means not everyone can be first, it might actually work in our favor. Some people will be able to get it right away. The people that are most at risk are probably going to be um, the most uh, willing to get it. And it, when people start getting it and nothing terrible happens, which is what is expected to happen, it will start to get normalized. This is true about vaccines in other contexts, too, like flu or childhood vaccinations, that people 
uh, vaccines need to be normalized. So when people see other people getting vaccinated, they become less resistant to getting vaccinated themselves. So uh, are there a lot of people out there that are hesitant to get this, but using the excuse, no, no, I'm a bit younger. So let those in front of me go ahead uh, because, uh, you know, that's 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 the neighborly thing to do. That's the moral thing to do when really it's not about those people uh, in need more than they are. It's a case of they're not really sure yet. Do we have a large contingent of the population that feels that way? can't say exactly what people are thinking, but the truth is people bring in a lot of considerations uh, to this. So it could be all of the above. It could be your hesitation. It could also be your willingness uh, to give it to people who are more at risk. So all those things are going to factor into the to the decisions. We, there, it, the, think, of, think of vaccines as a complex risk-benefit analysis. We think all of the things where we stand to benefit from it, all the risks involved, all the ways that we interact with each other in relation to a scarce resource, and all of those uh, influence uh, our, our decision making. Truth is, I'm not too concerned if people are saying it, are saying uh, I'll give it to someone else for non-altruistic reasoning, uh, as long as it becomes available eventually, and then they can make a good decision. Does the fact that it is a scarce, a scarce resource at this point change people's opinion? Does that make them want it more or want it less? It's going to go both ways. Some people can't wait to get it. They want to see this vaccine as their ticket out of this long, these long, many, many months, and they, they can't wait to get it. Other people need a little more convincing. So it, it, people are, have a wide range of attitudes about the vaccine. Um, I think if it was all available at all this time, then we'd be talking about things like mandatory vaccines, which, which it's, a, it's almost a relief that we don't need to talk about that yet, because that is a is a flashpoint for a lot of people. It's one thing to suggest a vaccine, it's yeah. another thing to say you have to get it. It's amazing how the discussion changes depending upon the the availability of it. Sure, sure. I mean, the availability of the vaccine it, it changes the decision making process too. So of course. And, you know, you were talking earlier about those in your specialty being those um, childhood immunization and and those parents that that are against this sort of thing. Uh, Obviously, uh, if you're an anti-vaxxer, you're an anti-vaxxer, you're going to feel the same way about this. Or are you? And it certainly isn't black and white. It isn't a night and day issue. There's a lot of people in the middle as well. Yeah, those, it's probably the people in the middle that we want to be looking at. Some people are, are vehemently opposed to vaccines. You may never change their minds. And as long as that's not a huge chunk of the population, that's okay. We can live with those kind of differences. It's the people in that are sitting on the fence that are usually uh, who public health outreach and communications are, are looking at. So we think about what's What's it going to take to to uh, relieve their concerns and make them feel more comfortable about vaccines? How do we deal with people who do not want them? Is it, you know, um, in the past, I think it's uh, there's been a lot of shaming. Like, man, how can you not believe the science, blah, blah, blah. With yeah. a pandemic, it seems to be a little different, and people seem to be a bit more sympathetic about those who may be questioning this. That's that's right. Um, the the past has been a lot of shaming, and largely because uh, we had a long we have a long scientific record on some of those childhood vaccines. Some of them have been around for decades. So people look at the hesitators and say, you know, how yeah. can you not be convinced by the scientific consensus? This is different. We do not have 
a strong long-term data on this. We don't have long-term data at all. It's too new. What we have is very emerging, very emerging data. Uh, of course, that's juxtaposed against a, a significant crisis. So people will get impatient eventually. But the fact that people are a little unsure about a new technology that we've never used before, that, that doesn't seem unreasonable. And obviously, education is better than shaming. Yeah, shaming never works. It, it, if anything, it gets makes people more resistant yeah. and it polarizes the discussion. It makes it nearly impossible to reach out to someone if you're if you're making them feel stupid and make them feel that their concerns are unjustified. And how much of this is a generational thing? Depending on what age group you're you're in, uh, what demo you're in, you might think of this differently. Well, there there has been a lot of tracking of, by by gender by by age too, and uh, it seems that uh, older Canadians are actually more accepting of vaccines. So thinking about that is they're more likely to accept medical advice willingly. Uh, younger people tend to be a little more questioning, more more critical, perhaps because uh, we've had more exposure to the internet and and uh, the sort of general democratization. Uh, of knowledge. Um, I've also known, um, this was prior to COVID, but I think it's still the case that younger people are more resistant to vaccine mandates. So they might be accepting of vaccines, but are very against the idea that we can tell people to get vaccinated while uh, sort of middle-aged and older people are more accepting of this idea that sometimes we just need to do this, that it's the, it's the communitarian thing to do to create mandates so that everyone can get on board for the greater good. And many have suggested that the young gener- younger generation just isn't old enough to remember when this was a real issue. Right. That, that, uh, that's been said a lot. I don't know if that really pans out because now younger people have been exposed right. to it. So it's been tracked in when there's been outbreaks, let's say, in California or, or in uh, some parts of Europe where there's been serious outbreaks of, let's say, measles in, in recent years. That doesn't change that many people's mind. It seems that people who were opposed to vaccines before and have endured it will sometimes say, say, see, we got through it. We did okay. This is, this is the way things should be. And, and uh, we don't need vaccines to change what nature supplies us with. Um, that being said, will a global pandemic change the way we think about vaccination? Will, because this is something we are all dealing with on all, from all points of all corners of the world, it has affected virtually everybody in, in some way. Will this change the perception of vaccinations moving forward? Um, that's, I, I wish I could tell you exactly what's going to happen. The truth is because now everyone is, is invested in it, it's going in two directions. For sure, it is making a lot of people say vaccines are something that we, that we, that we need. It's not just about children. It's not just about elderly people, but it's about everyone. At the same time, we're seeing that vaccines are getting more politicized. They're getting tied up with, with everything else surrounding the vaccine, uh, sorry, the pandemic response. This is the same way lockdowns are politicized, masks, just about every intervention that's been done is sort of dividing people along ideological and political lines, vaccines seem to be the same. So it's not clear that we're going to come out of this with a with a uh, general consensus that vaccination is the thing we should do. If anything, it's getting more polarized. What advice do you have for those as a vaccination becomes available more? Um, my advice is, is as we, is, uh, to get as much information as you can to get it from 
reliable sources. Uh, if you find yourself talking to people who are, let's say, more hesitant than you, uh, try not to get angry and frustrated with them. Uh, speak to people about their concerns and try to address their fears instead of trying to um, win them over with scientific facts. It's going to be fascinating to see how our perception of all of this, whether it changes or stays the same, say, a year from now. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see, too. Maya Goldenberg has been with us, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Guelph, talking about vaccinations and those who want it and those, are, and those that are reluctant. Maya, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. We have friends that are their family is going to do Christmas in July. Hoping that by July things are better. I was thinking I have a big picnic uh, in July for Christmas. Why not, right? Uh, around, you know, I, I've had this conversation with my wife over the years that, and, and you know, there's kids and family and da 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 da. It, you know, there's some years it's got to the point where uh, it, it's just too much. And, you know, you're running around too much. There's too many things going on. And I remember saying to my wife one year that, you know, this is more stress than what it's worth. I don't enjoy it as much because of all of the uh, the extra pressures and stuff that go around it. And what COVID-19 has done not only to the holidays, uh, well, every holiday, Thanksgiving, Easter, and, and just life in general, is it's made our life smaller. You know, we may find that after this is over that uh, it has allowed us to concentrate on the simpler things, the smaller things, the more important things in life as we move forward. Let's bring in Dr. Randy McCabe, a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavior neurosciences at McMaster University and is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, thanks, Scott. So, uh, you know, by the time we get to the holidays, we'll be through this, have gone through this for 10 months. I think I remember when this all started thinking, yeah, we'll be doing this for a few weeks and then it'll all get back to normal. Nobody I thought, like, thought that we'd still be in this uh, almost a year later. How much do you think this is weighing on people's minds that this holiday season will be much different from others? Yeah, I mean, it's so true. When this first started, we thought, oh, okay, maybe a few weeks, a few months, and here we are almost a year later, we're seasoned, we kind of know what we're doing, but we're all feeling tired, that COVID fatigue, and we know from big surveys of the Canadian population, it's really taking its toll on the mental health and well-being of everybody. We're seeing increased rates of depression, anxiety, substance use, and, you know, it's particularly hard uh, when we come to holiday times where we have special traditions, where we get together and see family, all those things that we look forward to. To, and uh, Christmas or other holidays, depending on what you celebrate, um, you know, really highlights the losses um, that are happening during this 2020 pandemic. But I guess, although we never thought it would go on this long, we also didn't ever think we'd have a vaccine here in 2020. So that's kind of we're ending the year in a, with on an up note in that regard. Yeah, good point. Uh, you also mentioned something about Easter. We were talking about Easter and Thanksgiving, uh, and we have got this figured out now. It's not like this. It's not like it's the first few months. I mean, we have certainly settled into the routine and and maybe not accepting of it, but certainly understanding how to get through it. Because we've been through Easter and Thanksgiving, does that help us with Christmas or the holidays, or does that just make it worse? Because we thought, wow, by this time we'd be able to to see each other. 
Yeah, and I think that's where we all have a role to play in adjusting our mindset and our expectations. Because if you expect it to be like it was when we're not in a pandemic, you're going to be disappointed, you're going to be sad, um, you're going to feel that loss even more than you you would if you look at it very differently. Um, and I liked how you were characterizing that, you know what, this is a pandemic time. Um, we're going to have our holiday ritual, but it's going to be simple, uh, you know, Everything is quieter. Every, there's time and space for reflection. The chaos of everyday life is gone for us all. You know, I'm sure it will be back hopefully next year. And so how do we reset our uh, expectations to see, okay, this is going to be a different way to celebrate, um, not in the same way. Uh, maybe try something, be creative, do it a different way. Don't do the things you usually did where, where you'll feel the loss more intently, but re- do it in a different way. And then there's lots of avenues to connect and reach out and do things that fit within the safety guidelines. So really just doing it in a pandemically safe way, uh, you can still have joy and, um, and celebrate, but just not in the same way. You know, Randy, you bring up a very valid point in the sense, and we've talked about this many times on this show, how life has changed, has it, how it's pivoted, we've had to be nimble, all those key words. And, and then from that to, well, some of these systems, some of these processes may stay in place post COVID-19 because they're just better. They're more efficient. They, whatever the reason is, you know, once we get through this holiday and realize that we can do it ourselves, we can get through it, perhaps discover Another element to this that we didn't realize, do you think we could get some change that will continue for the following Christmas? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we really, I mean, another thing we can change our mindset is that how we embrace the weather. Like, usually we hibernate. We as Canadians complain about the weather. But I think from the Scandinavian countries who they say uh, there's no bad weather, there's only bad clothing. You know, if we focus, that's one way we can <laughs> see family and friends is outside, hiking, walking, visiting in a socially distanced way. So, you know, really reshaping how we think of the outside and, and the darkness. So, you can still go for a walk at six at night or seven at night after work um, and maybe in a socially distanced way connect with people. So I think we do need to shift how we think. And that could have benefits going forward when, you know, people often feel like in, in winter they have to hibernate in the house and we don't get outdoors as much, which we know is so healthy for us and our, and our well-being. Talk a little bit about the darkness, because, again, that happens every year, whether we're in a global pandemic or not. But it, it really seems to affect life. I mean, you'll be, you know, it'll be five, six o'clock at night. It feels like it's 10 or 11 o'clock at night. How does the changing of the seasons and the arrival of the shorter days, how does that play a factor in all of this? Yeah, well, I think just for the general person, including myself, like it kind of feels like, oh, it's dark when I leave. That means I just stay in my house. You know, I I wouldn't even think about, oh, I should go out and do things outside because it's dark. Uh, But for other people in our community, they may have depression that has a seasonal component. So that lack of light activates them uh, to, you know, develop more sad mood. Um, So, you know, it can be associated with um, increased rates of depression um, during the winter months, Um, you know, just as we see uh, moods and, and people being outdoors more when it's summer and and we have long days of sun. Um, But it doesn't have to be that way if we, um, you know, in general, shift how we think about darkness instead of saying, oh, it's dark. Well, that's it. I stay inside to really rethink how we do that. Do we like go out and, um, you know, go for a walk with hot chocolates with your friends in a socially distanced way? Um, 
this Christmas, give each other cold weather uh, clothing so you can be outside. Um, so I think embracing it um, is, is one thing that we can do that could really help us, both the cold and also the darkness to really, and I've had to do that for myself where I'd usually be, um, you know, thinking, oh, it's dark. I'm not going to go for a long dog walk to really think, well, why couldn't I? You know, yeah. obviously in a safe way. I'm not going to walk down a dark alley with my dog. But, you know, really shifting our mindset to embrace what we have outside so we can be outside outside more because we know that's healthy for the pandemic uh, to re- reduce risk, but it's also healthy for your mental uh, well-being to be in nature, to be outside, to be physically active, because as we're all virtual, we're all sitting around more too. So that's another aspect to it. And just like the summer where we saw a run on outdoor gear and bicycles and such, we're starting to see the same with uh, skis and, and toboggans and skates and things that are, that are functional around the wintertime as people try to find something else to do. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. You see a whole run on all sorts of things. And, and hot tubs, I heard, are all sold out, too, as people try and yeah. they're not spending money on vacations and they're trying to do things that they can do outside. And you notice this, I think, too, with, you know, we live in a neighborhood that's 20, 25 years older now. So the kids have kind of aged their way through and the houses haven't turned over. We noticed over years, you know, there doesn't seem to be as many decorations up on the houses as there was a couple of years ago. Whereas this year, it looks like everybody's gone nuts and, and jumped on it way earlier. Well, that's for sure. And I think that one radio station started playing Christmas carols in October. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, people are doing that. They need something to look forward to, things that bring joy. And, and getting decorating early and decorating more than you would um, is a way to express that joy. And I think that it's really important for everybody to have something to look forward to. And, you know, putting things in place, even, and it can be little things that you look forward to each day, each week, to just kind of get us through this hard part, because we will get through it. We're going to be stronger because of it, and we're going to appreciate all these things that we took for granted, these basic things and aspects of life, but to get through it, and we're in kind of a, a tough stage right now, because we're seeing uh, the increase of cases and, and, and increased uh, hospital admissions um, and the outbreaks in our long-term care facilities, so it is hard times right now, and so having things in place that you can look forward to, even if it's a walk at the end of your day, um, can help us get through. That is so valid. It is so true. Um, what about guilt? I mean, you know, we were, there's a report on earlier we were playing that, uh, you know, some people feel guilty that they can't get to the people that they normally would like to uh, at this time of the year. And another issue, students coming back. And, you know, some necessarily may not want to come back into the household if there's elderly people at home. Talk about the guilt surrounding this. Yeah, and I mean, that's a real concern uh, because when people come back and come home, they can increase the risk to their family members. So I think really reframing the guilt um, that this is something beyond all of our control. And public health has set forth really clear guidelines around the City of Hamilton public health website of what we should be doing and the rules we should be following. And, and even if you do come back home, how you can isolate um, and wear a mask and keep your uh, family safe if you are uh, going home that way. Um, And so to really reframe, because the guilt comes from the belief that you should do something or you shouldn't do something. But if you can reframe it to say, this is a pandemic, we have to do things very differently just to keep all of ourselves safe, keep your family safe. And how can you be creative to express your love and your connections in different ways, whether that's virtually getting together because you can still do Zooms or by phone or by other platforms or 
getting outdoors in nature, going for a family hike, different things that you can do, um, you know, so that you do feel that sense of connectedness, but in a safe way. And that way you don't have to feel guilty because the guilt's really stemming from feeling like you should do something a certain way. You can take yourself off that hook because it's, it's the pandemic and we can blame it on COVID. And, you know, I, I don't mean to sound like a Scrooge, but I, I don't necessarily mind that this year. I, I, I'm fine. Is that bad? Should I feel guilty for not feeling guilty? <laughs> no, you know what? I was actually thinking, I was just talking to a, a family member about this. Like, usually we're in the chaos of everyday life and mm-hmm. things are chaotic and we're all kind of over-programmed and tons of activities. And it's been kind of nice to have it more simple. And a lot of people have told me that they found it very clarifying having this time and space where all those things are gone and it's just you and your immediate bubble um, has been very clarifying in terms of what's important, what your values are, and then you get all this opportunity for quality time. Now, it is harder for people who are single because then they're very isolated. They may not have be living in a family, but then, you know, they may bubble with one other single. I think there's some guidelines around that, but people have found an upside that they appreciate um, and and like the quietness and, and, and they can embrace those moments of peace. Have you thought about what it will be like when this is over? Again, my wife and I were talking about that on the weekend, that, you know, we're over the halfway mark here. This will be over by spring, summer, before you know it. Um, hopefully, hopefully, with everything working <laughs> as it should. Uh, I don't want to be overly optimistic here. But how do you think we're going to feel coming out of this? Do you think it's, there's going to be shell shock coming out of this when all of a sudden, you know, you're, it's like being in a dark place and they open the doors and the birds are chirping and you can walk out? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, for some people, for sure, like you're going to feel relief that you can get back to the things and you're going to appreciate them in a new way. Having gone through this adversity, it really strengthens us. Um, for other people, you know, who've lost businesses, who've lost jobs, the financial toll that this has taken, uh, you know, has been horrific. Um, you know, all the businesses closing and it's going to be a much longer term process of recovery and resetting and renewal of where they're going. Um, so I think it really depends on the person and their unique situation. Other people have lost lost people um, because of COVID. My mom's in a, in Shalom right now. It has a huge outbreak. We're really scared of what's happening there, and I know they're doing their best. So it really depends on on the people and what's happened to you, how you're going to come out of this. But we do know when people go through adversity, there's uh, something called post traumatic growth, where you grow from going through hard times, and even when bad things happen to you, there's things you learn from that and you gain in terms of um, you know your outlook going forward. So I think everybody's going to be in some way changed by this and, and hopefully for the better. And for people who've had those financial loss, um, you know, that's something that may, they may carry because that's a huge setback that doesn't just repair once the pandemic's over. So I think for some people, it's going to be much harder road to just get back to where they were. Obviously, many are fatigued with this whole thing. That being said, we are seeing the optimism of a vaccine on the horizon. We are seeing the optimism of the holidays and at least a break from all of this, whether it's what we can or can't do. Uh, how concerned are you? You know, again, even before the pandemic, February blahs. I mean, we all know what January and February feels like. Uh, many have said that will be the darkest hour for this pandemic simply because uh, rising cases through the winter and 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 the vaccination here, but not quite to the point where it's 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 making an impact yet. How concerned are you? And again, the other issue was uh, over the holidays, people who perhaps don't follow the protocol, we may see a surge in cases in the month after that. How concerned are you about that dark point in winter? 
Yeah, and I, definitely, you know, I'm mental health, health and addiction care. I, I'm definitely, we're all concerned about it here and we're ready um, to help. Um, I think the, the federal government has a, a website, well.ca, that, where they have, well, or sorry, wellness, where they have lots of resources people can use that, you know, if, if you are struggling, you don't have to suffer alone. So your family doctor is the best person to check in with first who can assess your needs and connect you with resources um, for uh, mental health support and wellness because um, absolutely. Absolutely. We're not at the end of this and it's kind of a dark time. We're going to have to go through till we get to the end of this. And so if people are struggling, really reaching out to get those supports um, so that you can be, um, you know, not suffering alone. Um, And then also just taking stock, taking a step back to look at what is your coping strategies through this? What is your self-care like? Are you taking time to exercise? get good sleep, um, you know, do things that make you happy, uh, you know, really looking at how you cope because it's, you know, when, when you think of coping as like a gas tank, uh, you know, we have a dr- lot of drains on our gas tank right now with the pandemic, with the darkness, yeah. with the cold, um, mm-hmm. you know, but what are we doing to fill up our tank? And that's all those things like your social network, your coping strategies, um, you know, your outlook, those are the things that can help get you through in a way um, so that you do get to the other side and maintain resilience. And obviously, a lot of us looking at that now, because again, we are at the 10th month period. And you, you know, you've got to adapt, you've got to somehow figure out a way to get yourself through this. Oh, exactly. And, and that's what it is. It's about adapting, adapting and being flexible. And that's easier for some of us than others. Like, you know, sometimes people can really easily, okay, I'm just going to roll with it, take each day as it comes, knowing things are going to change and be canceled. For other people, they like things more structured, routine, um, and it's much harder. So your own personality can make things harder, easier, and that, that's kind of beyond your control. But then having that awareness, just reflecting and trying to do what you can do um, so that you can best meet your own needs as you try and adapt. Because it it is hard, but adapting is the best way to try and, and make your way through it. Well said. Dr. Randy McCabe has been with us, professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster University, talking about coping with the pandemic during the holidays. Randy, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.